This podcast is not legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. You should always obtain legal advice about your specific circumstances. Welcome back, everyone. This is part two of our conversation with Michael Parker about M&A and the related tax issues. Uh, In part two, uh, picking up on where we left off, uh, we're going to talk about purchase price structure, uh, the allocation of purchase price consideration, and uh, some issues arising post-completion. So let's say, Parker, we've got through the due diligence process and we're now at the point of of nutting out a sale agreement. now, any good sale agreement is going to have tax warranties and indemnities in it, um, and especially the case when uh, when it's shares that are uh, changing hands. So, in your view, uh, what are the two or three sort of must-have most important tax indemnities and warranties? If I'm acting for a seller, I always want to see that there are some carve-outs in the warranties and indemnities that. Um, protect a taxpayer or protect a seller for things like liabilities that have been properly disclosed throughout the due diligence process or have been um, properly uh, provisioned in the accounts that are provided to the purchaser. So in other words, the purchaser is aware of it, it's been provided for in the account, there's no surprises. Um, I'd also like to see a carve out for any changes in legislation or judicial interpretation of the law. Um, to protect a seller against taxes that, in a sense, couldn't be foreseen because the law's changed. So that typically I want to see in there from a seller's point of view. If I'm acting for the purchaser, and particularly, as you mentioned, in the, in the context of a share sale, um, I would want to see a specific warranty that the relevant target entity, be it a company or a trust, has not made a family trust election or an interposed entity election. Um, Those elections have the effect practically that if the company or trust makes a distribution to people other than members of the relevant family group, that distribution will be subject to a special tax at the company or trust level um, and effectively at at 47% uh, or full Uh, marginal rate plus Medicare. If we're selling a company or if we're buying a company, um, then typically speaking, the purchaser is not going to be a member of the family group. So the existence of that family trust election or interposed entity election really um, can make the deal fall over and mean that we need to go back to the drawing board in terms of how to structure the deal. Um, And the final thing I always want to see if I'm particularly acting for the the purchaser in a share sale or unit sale, is that the company or trust um, provides a warranty that it's up to date with all its tax compliance, uh, that it's not subject to any reviews by the ATO or other revenue authorities, and that it's not a party to any tax avoidance schemes or fraud or evasion. Excellent. And uh... No, the, the family trust interposed entity election issue is um, an especially scary one and uh, uh, one that you want clients to uh, be able to apprehend as early as possible because, uh, as you say, it can be uh, a, very complicated and even a deal breaker. So um, family trust elections is probably a topic for another podcast, I think, Parker. We might have to have you back <laughs> next season to talk about those uh, a little more because... Uh, 
it, it, it can be scary stuff. So it's also the case, uh, Michael, that the, the sale agreement will outline uh, the purchase price structure. And from the perspective of the parties, the purchase price is one of the most important things. Uh, in our last podcast uh, with James, we, we talked about earnouts. And I think we're seeing though, we see those a lot and we're seeing them more. And um, they're a common feature in a lot of deal, uh, a lot of deals. And I think um, they're perceived as a way of allowing a purchaser to hedge some of their risk in the deal by linking a, a portion or a percentage of the sale proceeds to future business performance. Now, Earnouts have been a controversial and, and fraught topic for years and years in, in the tax world, and they, they can receive special and one might even say slightly counterintuitive uh, treatment for tax law purposes. So I know it's a very big topic, but could you briefly outline uh, how this might work? Sure, Frank. Um, well, traditionally, the ATO's longstanding view or approach to earnouts was to uh, require the, the vendor or the seller to get, work out what the market value of the earnout right was and to include that market value as part of the proceeds for the sale. In other words, you, you, you worked out your, your sale proceeds as the cash that you'd received up front plus the market value of the earnout right, whatever that happened to be. Um, then if further funds were received under the earnout, that was seen as being a separate event, um, so a separate CGT event where you've partially disposed of your interest in the earnout right, and you might have a capital gain or even a capital loss um, as and when that, uh, that earnout payment was received and there was this separate CGT event. Um, now, I, I think the ATO is right um, with that historical view, it made sense to me um, that you've received both cash proceeds and an asset and you need to include the market value of the asset as part of your proceeds. It was seen though, and you mentioned it was controversial, it was always seen as a bit controversial, um, not least because it required people to go out and try and obtain a market value for one of these earnout rights, which was practically difficult to do and, and costly to do as well. And so, um, Treasury amended the law some years ago to bring in a specific regime dealing with earnouts, but for certain qualifying earnout arrangements. Not all arrangements, but certain arrangements. And, and what those rules effectively do is ignore the earnout as being a, a separate asset. So you don't need to go and get necessarily a valuation of that asset and include that value in your, your capital proceeds. What you do instead is work out your capital gain um, based on the, 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 the physical proceeds, the cash that you've received. And then in a later year, if you do happen to receive proceeds, further proceeds as part of an earnout, you go back and amend your earlier year tax return to add in those additional proceeds as and when you receive them. And that might be over a number of years. So you might need to keep going back and amending your earlier year tax return to include those additional proceeds um, and, and increase your capital gain each time that that happens. Um, now, that, those rules can be um, quite concessional in the sense, well, A, because it might mean you don't need to go and get a evaluation of the earnout, right? So it's potentially saving you some, some cost in doing that. Um, and also the, the, you know, the 
risk that the ATO might not agree with that value. Um, so it's saving you that, that exposure. But it also might mean that you get better CGT treatment of the earnout proceeds. So for instance, if, if um, the earnout um, proceeds are received within 12 months of the initial sale, um, they can still be eligible for the 50% discount provided that the, the relevant underlying asset was held for 12 months prior to sale. Whereas under the old um, earnout approach, if, if you've received and recognised the earnout as a separate asset and received a payment from that within 12 months of receiving that earnout right, it wouldn't be eligible for the 50% discount because you hadn't held the right for more than 12 months. So it, it can take that away, that, that, um, that issue away off the table. And it also might mean that if the original sale was eligible for the CGT small business concessions, um, then the additional proceeds that you receive under the earnout can get the same treatment that the, the original sale did. So they're, they're also eligible for the CGT concessions if the original sale was. From that point of view, they're great. Um, uh, they won't, as I mentioned, apply to everyone. There are certain restrictions, um, not least of which is that they're not there to um, effectively allow you to defer the taxing point of proceeds artificially. And there's a, a five-year cap on how long the earnout can be. And there are some other rules around them. Um, but when they're available, these concessional rules, they're fantastic. Brilliant. And of course, a, a classic tax issue uh, we see in transactions and especially uh, where there's been a sale of shares is uh, the allocation of the purchase price um, among uh, those various shares. And, and there'll be a mix of shares. Some of them will be CGT assets, some of them won't. So, uh, and oftentimes uh, there may also be a, a tension between the parties about uh, you know, whose position is best maximised by the allocation of the purchase consideration. So, uh, Michael, could you briefly outline uh, this, this issue that we see a lot and that often arises and, and uh, again, just outline a little bit about how this issue might be managed? It, it, well, it is a, an issue that, that crops up um, a lot and particularly where we're dealing with sellers who are either individuals or trusts who are eligible for um, the 50% CGT discount or otherwise sellers who, whether they're individuals, trusts, companies, where they might be eligible for small business concessions or even dealing with pre-CGT assets. And for those particular sellers, there would be um, generally a preference to try and have the proceeds allocated towards assets that are taxed under the CGT regime. Um, now, not all assets are taxed under the capital gains tax regime, but um, those that are, are things like goodwill, real property, trademarks, and there are others. Um, but there are also assets that uh, aren't taxed under the CGT regime, such as depreciable assets, and that can include copyright um, or interests in copyright, um, as well as trading stock. And for those other assets, such as depreciables or trading stock, um, because they're not taxed under the CGT regime, they're not eligible for any of the CGT concessions or the 50% discount. And if they're pre-CGT, they might not be eligible for um, concessional treatment under that regime either. So typically, as I say, a seller where they're 
um, individuals or trusts or dealing with pre-CGT assets or eligible for small business concessions would have a, a tendency to prefer proceeds allocated to capital gains tax assets or assets taxed under the CGT regime. Um, by contrast, a buyer may prefer to allocate proceeds to trading stock or to those depreciable assets. And the reason being might be that um, they you know, they prefer to account for it that way. There might be commercial reasons and obviously tax reasons as well. But um, a lot of purchasers don't like acquiring goodwill or, or allocating proceeds to goodwill from an accounting and commercial point of view. Um, so there can be a, a tension, a real tension between what the vendor or seller wants and what the purchaser wants. Um, now, typically what happens uh, and what we recommend people do is to try and negotiate that allocation of proceeds and to agree it in writing and ideally in the sale contract itself, which is then signed by the parties. And the ATO have traditionally said that um, if, if the allocation of proceeds is um, agreed in writing by the, pro, by the parties and has been the subject of a proper um, arm's length dealing, then they won't look to, to interfere with that. Um, what's always important to bear in mind though, is just because the parties themselves are arm's length parties, they're, they're third parties, that doesn't mean that the transaction itself has been um, dealt with on an arm's length basis or, or indeed the allocation or the decision how to allocate the proceeds has been dealt with on an arm's length basis. Um, and the, the case law would suggest that if one of the parties is effectively agnostic about how the proceeds are allocated and they just don't turn their mind to it and allow the other party to determine how the proceeds are to be allocated, then that is not considered to be an arm's length dealing. And in a situation like that, the ATO would reserve the right to be able to come in and substitute what it considers to be the market value for the relevant assets as opposed to what the, the parties have put in the contract. Um, so something to just be aware of. And, and as I say, it's always, I think, best if you can demonstrate some evidence that there has been some toing and froing, some negotiating between the parties as to how the proceeds are to be allocated. Um, and in a lot of dealings you know, we get involved in, there is some pretty strenuous negotiation going on about that because of the the tension between what the vendor and what the purchaser wants. Um, so if there's an you know, exchange of emails or whatever it happens to be that evidences that, well and good, um, that stuff is important to, to keep on file. And speaking of strenuous, Parker, you're doing all the talking here, so uh, this, is, this has possibly been a strenuous <laughs> exercise for you, but, but we are nearly <laughs> at the end. And, um, and, and let's say that we have had uh, a smooth deal and the deal is completed and the seller has the money in the bank and um, you know, we've all gone out for a big lavish lunch and um, if you're there we know we're going to get some fine wine and uh, some, <laughs> some, 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 some very well selected vintages but um, but you know it, it feels like the end and it is the end of the the, the M&A process but it's not necessarily the end of the story from a tax point of view so uh, just briefly, what are a couple of the key tax considerations that have to be considered and, and have to be dealt with post-completion? Oh, thanks, Frank. It's a really important point. And I think what does 
occasionally happen and, and hopefully happens um, very occasionally is that the deal gets done, people just file it away in their bottom drawer and forget about it and, and don't turn their mind to, hey, wait a minute, what, what things did we need to do post-transaction um, just to make sure that our house is in order? And it might be as simple as the seller working out um, what its tax position is, um, particularly whilst the transaction's fresh in everyone's mind, um, seeking um, advice where they need to seek advice in writing and um, then preparing and lodging their tax returns accordingly. I mentioned there that it's best to do it while it's fresh in everyone's mind. Uh, that is so important. If, if people even leave it six, 12 months down the track, um, human nature being what it is, it, it is you know, a real risk that people have lost sight of why certain things happened or um, why the transaction was structured in a certain way. So it's best to do it sooner rather than later while it's fresh in everyone's mind. Another point is um, if, if, if the sellers uh, look to apply the small business CGT concessions, then they need to make sure that they tick all the boxes with those. And that might mean um, things like making sure that there are CGT concession stakeholders or significant individuals in the relevant year at the, at the CGT event. Um, with, uh, once you've got a trust involved, particularly a discretionary trust, determining whether you've got significant individuals and CGT concession stakeholders will often involve looking at who the, the trust makes distributions to. And we know that that would often happen at 30 June or you know, on or before 30 June. Um, so there might be a bit of a, a lag between the transaction occurring and final distributions being made at the end of the year. So you wanna make sure when those distributions are being made, that people have still got their focus on making sure that things happen in the way they're meant to happen to ensure that we do get significant individuals um, and concession stakeholders and they don't lose track of um, or lose sight of that and, and instead suddenly think, oh, we can distribute off to this beneficiary or that beneficiary who's on a relatively low tax rate, which might have the effect of meaning we don't access the concessions. And I've seen that happen, sadly, um, in real life. And it, it was a very unfortunate situation. Um, also with those small business concessions, there are elections that sometimes need to be made in writing, choices in writing. It's a bit of a an unusual thing these days in, in tax for you to have to actually make written elections. But for the small business concessions, there are some elections that must be made and they need to be made by a certain point in time. Payments need to be made within a certain period of time, et cetera. So again, where those concessions are being applied is again, keeping, keeping sight of that and, and diarising that certain things need to happen um, before the end of the year. Another final point I'd, I'd make is, and I mentioned earlier on duties being a, you know, a, an issue that are, it's often out of sight, I think, for practitioners. Um, if there are dutiable transactions involved where there's been a sale, you know, whether it's from a pre-sale restructure or um, from the pur purchaser's point of view, if, if they've acquired a, a piece of dutiable property or an interest in a, a, a trust or a company that's um, a landholder, for instance, then they need to be mindful of um, not only that there is potentially a duty of liability, but also the timing for making any um, applications to the relevant 
revenue officers and paying the, the duty in a timely fashion. Um, failure to do it can lead to penalties and um, you know, it, it, it's a, a, a thing again that just should be diarised at the end of the transaction and not just put in the bottom drawer and two years down the track someone turns their mind to it and realises it's too late and there's huge penalties involved or, um, or worse. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Michael, and um, an absolute um, an absolute delight having this conversation with you. And I think you've really showcased the, both your expertise and um, your experience in this podcast. So uh, thank you so much. And thanks to everyone for listening today. And uh, as always, uh, if this podcast raises any questions for you, then please uh, feel free to get in touch. Uh, our details, all of our details uh, are available on the uh, Hall and Wilcox website, which is www.hallandwilcox.com.au or uh, connect with us or Hall and Wilcox on LinkedIn. Uh, and if you enjoyed uh, today's episode, and I have no doubt that you would have, then please rate, review or follow our podcast uh, wherever you choose to get your podcast. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.